Welcome to T-Rads, an audio podcast hosted by Dr. Bishak Khamen, a radiologist at Temple University Hospital, with the purpose of sharing the clinical and research work done in Temple Radiology with the Temple community and beyond. We are pleased to bring our listeners informative and enjoyable conversation about the impact of radiology in and outside the Temple community. Although this podcast was recorded during the COVID pandemic, safe practices including six feet of social distancing and mask wearing was incorporated at all times, which may influence audio quality. Hello everyone, my name is Bishak Kamath. I am a radiologist at Temple. I have created this idea of an audio podcast Uh, with the idea of inviting speakers both within and outside our radiology department, but associated with imaging, of course, at Temple University Health System. The goal is to share our specialty work, be it clinical, research, or non-interpretive information to the Temple community at large. The aim is to foster an awareness of what we do, so the referral base, the student and resident community, the staff, and ultimately the patients are aware of what Temple Radiology Umbrella covers. This will also build on an existing strong bridge between the Temple Radiology Department and the Temple community at large. I'm glad to have the support of our radiology department, specifically our chair, Dr. Gary Cohen, and also Ron Zink, as we start this for now, once per six-month audio podcast. I'm also glad to have two of our radiology residents, Dr. Zach Walshen and Dr. G. Moon, work with me on this project, helping me with both the technical and non-technical elements, uh, and also provide another perspective. With that said, we begin our first session today with our first invited speaker for this audio podcast, Dr. Hillel Moreski, who is a cardiothoracic and pediatric imager here at Temple. Thanks, Bishak. Thanks for the nice introduction. I really feel very uh, privileged um, to be part of this venture. I think it's a great venture. And uh, I I really feel very humbled um, that you've asked me to be part of your first podcast. So thank you very much. All right, Dr. Moreski, um, I want to begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about your background. Um, if you could please uh, let us know that. So please, um, you know, if, if it's okay with you, please call me Hillel. Um, every time you say Dr. Moreski, I think that my dad's about to walk into the room here. Uh, my dad's a neonatologist uh, in Toronto. Um, I was born in Toronto, and um, I thought I would be a pediatrician as well. Um, in the end, I became a pediatric radiologist and a cardiothoracic radiologist, as you're aware. Um, and I decided instead of um, treating kids, I just have lots of kids of my own. So a uh, big part of my identity is being a father uh, to four wonderful children um, and a husband to my wife, Marguerite. And, um, you know, we live um, in the Burbs just outside of Philly and uh, really happy to have joined the Temple team. Wonderful. Thanks for uh, informing us of that. So, Hilal, I want to start with the uh, first specific question, and that gets at the 
pandemic that we have that is uh, existing as of today as we speak uh, in the United States, and that is the COVID pandemic. So um, what I want, would like to know as, the, as you're the cardiothoracic radiologist, what did you think of COVID when it first hit the United States and also specifically here at Temple? Wow, it's, um, it's quite an elaborate question. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, the short answer is there's still so much we don't know about COVID. Um, when it COVID first hit, we had heard about it um, from our colleagues in Asia. I'd personally heard about it uh, from my colleagues in Israel and Italy who are dealing with it as radiologists. And we're reading about it in journals and what to look for. I remember I was sitting in the body room uh, with Dr. Caroline and the first possible COVID case came in for a chest CT and, and we were just like, well, that just looks like ground glass opacity. And at the time I was preparing a lecture actually for vaping associated lung injury. Um, and I, I couldn't believe how much similarity um, COVID-19 opacities had with vaping associated lung injury. They, they looked almost very, very similar. And um, from a radiology perspective, Again, I, I got to tell you, you know, working with the, the thoracic imagers that we have, we have a very strong depth in our thoracic imagers with DOS and Coumarin and the other body imagers. Um, it wasn't really until I, I would say the 20th or 30th CAT scan of the chest of florid COVID opacities until um, I started to understand what the pattern of um, these opacities meant and what it meant clinically and being in touch with the clinicians. But I still think, Bishak, um, in terms of your question, we, there's still so much that we don't know. I mean, we keep calling it multifocal pneumonia. Is it really a pneumonia or is it a um, dysregulation of protein and phospholipids, an immune response? Uh, uh, is this a, a, an immune storm um, you know, that, we're, that we're seeing? But definitely radiologically, there's a pattern that has emerged. And um, we're in the thick now of the second wave and I can tell you that not only from the numbers and hearing on the radio um, and looking at the graph and seeing how many numbers came in, but yesterday I was speaking with a colleague of mine who's a pulmonologist, looking at the viral load, which you can sort of interpret, I don't want to say in interpolate, but you can correlate at least um, anecdotally with the extent of opacities you have in the lungs. We went three or four months with seeing maybe 20, 30 COVID cases a day, and those cases were mild. And now it's as if that same pattern of what, what I call in my own mind a blizzard opacity, which is just whiteness throughout both lungs, that's returned in a big way. And that tells me that we're really knee deep, at least, in the second wave. Okay. Um, Next question I have for you is, um, based on your review of the literature, uh, at the, especially at the initial phase when the, when the COVID uh, came, um, you know, what role did you personally see as the cardiothoracic radiologist at that time? So it's interesting that you ask. Um, again, I've got to tell you on a personal level, this, was, this hit at a, at a time personally when I was a first year attending a temple I was just getting a lay of the land uh, politically and a lay of the land um, uh, you know, academically here at this, in this institution. Um, and I gotta tell you, the literature at the beginning, um, 
if you if you read back in the ACR guidelines, it actually um, dissuaded us from using CAT scan as a screening tool. But fortunately, we have trailblazers in our midst. And trailblazers, I mean, these are forward thinkers, um, the kind of generals like General Patton that you would want on your team in the case of war. And I mean that in terms of Jerry Kreiner and Gary Cohen. Kreiner is an internationally known um, thoracic medicine doctor. And um, he said, I know that the ACR guidelines say this, but <laughs> I've read all the literature that's coming out of China, and I've co um, collaborated with all of my um, uh, colleagues here, and we've decided we are going to use CT as screening. He went against the stream in such a way that as a radiologist at the beginning, I've got to tell you personally that I wasn't sure um, what's this guy doing? It sounds, it sounds like it's against the, the radiology guidelines. But again, we've got such good leadership in Gary Cohen. The Cohen said, listen, we are going hand in hand with Kreiner and we are going to see this process through. We are going to see his vision through. And again, like a very good leader he had everyone line up right behind him, and that's what we've been doing. And now other institutions are learning from us how we did this Trinary score, which was a novel invention whatsoever. I'm sorry if that was your next question about the Trinary score. But now with the, you know, we've published um, a, a lot of data on how this score is so helpful, how it correlates not only with CT, but it correlates also with plain films and correlates with viral load and outcome. So other institutions are now learning from us how to screen these patients and to separate them through into three separate categories. So Hillel, uh, you're right. Uh, the next couple of questions were actually a segue of what you said, uh, but I would like you to kind of elaborate on them if you will. So um, my next question is I know that you um, and your uh, team work with Dr. Kreiner. Um, I know Dr. Kreiner had a meeting with both the radiology department and also the other clinical staff here. Um, I would like you to give us some thoughts about the initial clinical care team response from your standpoint. So I think that, uh, you know, people always tell us, look at the bright side of COVID, look at the bright side of being locked down with your family and, um, you know, spending all that time together um, I think there is a bright spot here for, for radiology as well. Um, radiology, you know, which has all often been thought of as, you know, kind of like a tertiary uh, medicine, like laboratory or pathology, um, we stepped up in a big way. We stepped up our game um, as we were asked to by Kreiner and his team, um, and they have accepted us as pretty much equal partners in this venture, uh, in this fight against COVID. And, and, and I'll elaborate on that just a little bit. Um, when a patient comes in with suspected COVID-19, you know, there's many different ways to diagnose them. You can look at them clinically, you can put a stethoscope, um, you can do a rapid um, COVID test or PCR test, which takes a little bit longer, or you can just throw them in the gantry of the CT and we'll give you an answer in about five minutes. So here is an opportunity that we had and we jumped all over it. And we took that bull by the horns. And um, we, meaning the cardiothoracic radiologists, led by our chair, Gary Cohen, who said, this is your path forward. And we said, 
yeah, that's what we're going to do. And um, I wasn't the one who established the Trinity score. That was actually Das. And he was ruminating with me the other day. Um, he's like, oh, geez, I wish I never would have given um, the category two. <laughs> because, you know, it gives a lot of room for interpretation. Should have just been one and three. For those of you who are uh, unfamiliar with the Trinity score, meaning, you know, three, try, right? One, two, and three. And in, you know, in the, in the words of the late, great Mitch Hedberg, you know, eating a banana is the opposite of um, traffic light, right? Because a traffic light green means go, yellow means slow down, right? But, you know, when you're eating a banana, you know, green means slow down, yellow means eat, and red means where the heck did you get that banana from? But um, all jokes aside, we have the Trinity score, which is just like a robot or a traffic light for COVID, one, two, and three. Run, meaning consistent with a typical viral pneumonia. Two, meaning maybe. And three, meaning definitely not. And using this Trinity score, we're able to really help the clinicians on the front lines um, establish whether or not that patient sitting in front of them suffers from COVID-19. And, you know, it's funny because uh, sometimes we're, we'll be doing a chest CT for a completely other purpose, for pulmonary embolism, for example, and we'll notice some incidental uh, infiltrates. We had a case that was written up um, about a patient who came in. Uh, you, you were actually published with me on that case with a patient with breast cancer who incidentally had some COVID-19 opacities. And it's funny, you know, that this Trinity score is percolated down to the level of the oncologists and the clinicians that they asked, okay, doc, I understand that this patient who came in for breast cancer staging has COVID opacities, but is it a Trinity one, two, or three? And I'm like, this is a Trinity one. So it's amazing how fast this is disseminated, um, this scoring system. Um, it's this classification system. And, you know, every single clinician, I think, in the hospital has been impacted um, by this scoring system and has been benefited. And ultimately, that's the patient that has been benefited because, you know, if you're unsure whether the patient has COVID-19 or not, well, here's a tool that'll tell you, like I said, in under five minutes. Uh, actually, uh, my next question was about the trinary system, which I think you already very well elaborated. I want to give you the opportunity here, though. I know now that this trinary system has existed. I think the other radiologists are familiar with it. The uh, clinicians are familiar with it at this point. Um, what has been kind of uh, the impromptu, if you will, results showing um, the, the how it's been working? Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So... <clears throat> How it's been working, we, we can evaluate that on many different levels. Um, a, a team of researchers and I had a look at the severity of um, the COVID scans, and we actually came up with some, some very interesting data um, that was completely random that just slapped us in the face when we looked at it. We saw that, that, that um, non-whites being African-Americans, blacks, and Latinos tend to suffer from more severe um, COVID uh, in terms of opacities in both lungs, um, we found that patients who were coming from lower socioeconomic levels, um, weaker strata, if you will, of the socioeconomic uh, surrounding, 
um, they had a poor outcome. And we kind of correlated that also with days of admission in terms of intubation, yes or no. And, um, you know, everything that you're hearing about and reading about in the literature of ethnic m minorities and um, people who are less affluent suffering from worse COVID, we're seeing that in terms of visual uh, opacities, visualizing that in terms of opacities in the chest. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure really what your question uh, was relating to, whether you know the the Trinity score, if it's reproducible or not, because that's an entirely different question that I think that um, I'd prefer not to answer here. But the long the, the long answer turns into the short answer would be no. <laughs> sometimes you know, some, I would what I would call a two. Somebody would else would call a three, and sometimes you know, um, I, I'll call something a one and to be like, are you sure? Maybe that's a two and vice versa. So there is definitely a specter of interpretation. This is not an exact science, but it, de it does definitely give us insight into the chest. It gives us a, a, a look, it gives a real peek into what's going on um, at the secondary pulmonary lobule level, at the lung level, what's going on. With that said, would you say that the existing information does support that generally speaking, we've done pretty well with the scoring system. Oh, absolutely. I think if you were to send out a questionnaire to all the emergency docs uh, at Temple and the pulmonologists, how helpful has this Trinity score been from one to 10? The answer will be 12. Your question is, is how successful have you been with the, this um, CT viral screen? I think the answer would be very. Um, the fact that, you know, within one or two days, we were able to pull together a protocol which is less radiation than regular chest CT and give you just as much information, like I said, giving you a window to the lung. So the um, next question I want to ask you is about, I know <coughs> staffing uh, can be difficult uh, during this kind of pandemic time, it especially when it hit initially. It required a lot of attention to these cases and a lot of us to be uh, actively reading them. Uh, the cases were coming at a rate uh, that was uh, quite fast. Um, and, and, and I know we needed to go uh, to some of these uh, covering overnight shifts initially, as, as I'm sure you remember. Um, do you want to kind of talk a little bit about that and, and how that whole experience was? Because um, we have come a long ways since that time. Sure. So I remember the last time I did a night shift in my residency, I went out with my wife the, the, the next day. Um, it was early, early morning, almost, almost noon, and uh, I had a steak breakfast, and I celebrated doing my last night shift. For me, that was a huge milestone. That's right. I, I remember the same, uh, Hilal. My That's last true. night shift That's true. as a resident, yes. I celebrated it, yes. and I vowed I'd never do another night shift. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, intro, da 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 income COVID, right? right? And you're 100% right that staffing became an issue. Um, it's, it was actually not just such a simple issue that we need more hands on deck to, to staff the chest CTs and chest plane films, but we also, at the same time, and I'm not sure if you remember, we had less uh, outpatients and less, if you want to call them, um, voluntary studies. Um, you know, the Ele elective. Elective studies, correct. That's the, one, that's the word I was looking for, thank you. 
Um, we had much less selective studies. Um, so on one hand, we're have, we have more COVID studies. On the other hand, we've got less elective studies. So that kind of enabled itself to um, shift some of the um, workforce over from, for example, you know, MSK MRI of the knee to looking at plain films of the chest. And uh, th that's on a micro level. But on a macro level, what happened is um, we stepped up um, I, I pretty much unanimously, um, it was, you know, in a phone call uh, over the weekend, um, all of the temple radiologists um, said, yes, we will be the first to do this. We will volunteer to do overnight um, uh, shifts, overnight COVID shifts. And an overnight COVID shift, as you're familiar, uh, starts at midnight and ends at eight in the morning. And I was actually surprised, you know, it wasn't just the um, junior attendings um, that were not just invited, but actually the more senior uh, attendings, they jumped right in. They threw their, their, um, their cap in and said, yeah, I'll do the same. And you, know, you have attendings who are um, at least double my age, and um, they were doing night shifts happily. Because again, we all feel like we are part of a greater whole. We felt like this, I think, even before COVID hit. But COVID, again, look for the bright spots. COVID has brought us closer together on a personal level and on a communal level. COVID has brought us closer together. I'm cl much closer with some of those elder, um, I don't know if I could call them elder, some of those um, non-young attendings. Experienced attendings. Ex experienced, very wise and, and right. silvery-haired attendings than, than I ever was. Um, seeing them step up in a way like that um, was, was very meaningful for me. And again, our small section of chest imaging, which is essentially three, um, we expanded to 20 overnight. And I'm very thankful to all the non-chest uh, radiologists who really um, pitched in in a great way because there was no way that the three of us could have handled all that volume. And um, yeah, so thank you to all of you for doing that. And thanks to the residents as well, because, you know, without having the residents deal with the non-COVID stuff, we would have never been able to deal with all the COVID volume ourselves. And um, so, yeah, so that's, that's what the overnight shifts look like. So from going on celebrating never doing another overnight shift to having to do some overnight shifts. And I wouldn't be surprised if we um, move back into doing some more of those overnight shifts as the plague sort of uh, rips through for the second time. Um, hopefully we won't, and hopefully we're, we're smarter about um, handling the elective and outpatients. Um, but you never know. It's, it, this, this is, again, this is another lever, another tool in the toolbox that we have provided our chair with that can be pulled at any time. Um, this lever can be pulled in case of emergency, and it's there. And, and I got to tell you, on a personal level, um, while these these night shifts were tiring, and I felt towards the end at around 5:30, 6 in the morning, that I could barely keep my eyes open. Right? Uh, not the same, not not the same vigor you have when you're 39, when you're <laughs> when when you're 29. Um, I must tell you, on a, on a personal level, I felt very fulfilled. I, fi I finished these night shifts feeling um, great about myself, 
that I was able to help the system. I was able to help these patients who desperately needed rapid interpretation of their uh, chest CAT scans and um, very fulfilled because, you know, there's a certain amount of, of happiness that comes with knowing that you're doing the right thing and being part of a greater whole. So Hilal, no, that's that's actually a very good point. And I know this is about you, but I also happen to, as you as you were thanking the sort of non uh, cardiothoracic imagers, I guess who were also reading. I guess COVID. I should thank I thoracic was, imagers was, as well. Yeah, yeah. Right? I, I was, Don't I leave was, them out. That, that, that's true. Uh, I was one of them who did these overnight shifts as well, as you know. And Respect. the thing is, I feel exactly what you said, and that is, at the time that that was happening and it was coming to us, I remember. Um, I was getting very exhausted at around, as you per perfectly said, around five o'clock in the morning. I described the same exact thing, and but at the same time, it was very fulfilling. It was realizing that when the times are tough, you know, the saying goes, when the when the when the when the going gets tough, the tough get going, and that's kind of exactly what I felt like. But I think um, uh, Dr. Walshan here and Dr. Moon, on behalf of the residents, I think. It's, 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 it's important to point out that they were a big part of that. They were a big part of that because, you know, we, that, and I think that's what you're getting at, not just the cardiothoracic images and non-cardiothoracic images and the residents. We as a team were doing it to fulfill this mission, if you will, to get on top yeah, of Yeah, and I think that's, that, that's one of the real unique elements of, of, of being a physician at Temple is really we're, we're, part, we're, we're part of a team. And you, you have that feeling constantly. So um, to kind of segue into the next part, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the response, especially as the curve, as we were flattening the curve was the saying as it goes. Um, what did you feel we at Temple made a difference to get ahead of the curve, at least from the radiology standpoint? Definitely in terms of diagnostics, I think uh, we, were, we were ahead of the curve. But how did we help get a, help get ahead of the curve, uh, the curve in terms of um, illness? I, I'm not really sure. I, I can tell you that that I have been uh, very impressed by by Temple's seriousness when it comes to social distancing and PPE. Um, you know, when people were saying that there's a mask shortage, I personally never suffered a mask shortage at Temple. I never thought, oh, geez, what am I going to do if I run out of gloves or masks or whatever that never happened so obviously the people in the higher levels dealing with logistics um either they stocked up or they had some sort of prophecy ahead of time and the screening right with the app and everything like that at the absolutely front doors, yeah so i mean the, the app that you're talking about with the, with the you know the iphone app to self screen yourself um that's replacing you know the people who actually volunteered to take temperatures at the entrance of um, of the hospital. So I, I think that there is a certain amount uh, of uh, ingenuity um, that, that is happening here, and we're witnessing it, uh, you know, unfold uh, before our eyes. But I think, Bishak, the better answer I can give you will probably be in five years from now, looking back. Um, because, like, the stuff is unfolding. It's all hot off the press. Um, the one thing that, that I'll tell you um, that I think is, is a real success story at Temple is the issue of uh, personal responsibility. And I think that, um, that, that, that we all agree that um, mitigation of COVID is a personal responsibility. And 
Temple puts it upon each and every faculty, resident, tech, nurse, um, you name it, orderly, to have that personal responsibility, to socially distance, to wash their hands, to wear a mask, and now rolling out the new goggles. I mean, I haven't gotten the new goggles yet, but I've heard that they're awesome. Um, and that's another layer of protection. I do get the feeling that Temple cares about its employees. Um, the fact that Temple cares about its patients, that was well known to me a long time ago. I think that another, another important point, again, w is, uh, is, is mentioning that um, Dr. Kreiner jumping on, on, this on top of this issue early and ahead of the game. Without him, I think we'd be in a much different uh, place than we are now. Because, you know, as you're aware, Dr. Kreiner's got his contacts in China and his contacts internationally. And we were well braced for what was about to hit us. Um, so I think that we owe a lot of uh, gratitude to Dr. Kreiner and his team um, and his contacts uh, in China for, for helping us prepare ourselves for what would be the storm. So those were some good points you mentioned, Hillel. Um, now I want to kind of redirect your attention a little bit towards the research element of COVID. Um, and so I would like you to kind of elaborate on some of the work that you have done, that you know the work uh, you've done both with uh, me and other staff and also Dr. Kreiner and that team, uh, and kind of expand on some of the results, uh, you know, of course, clarifying what is pending and what is published. So thanks for asking that question, because as you know, research is, is definitely one of my passions. And I was fortunate enough to have um, a handful of uh, summer students. We had a very interesting COVID summer um, in that we had to facilitate these summer students completely virtually, but it actually in the end was very successful because we have a plethora of data. We have a plethora of images of clinical history um, and these students were, were able to, with my direction, mine this data in a very meaningful way and like I alluded to earlier, the severity score, um, which is uh, it's a novel score that's pending in publication, uh, was something that we found correlation with mortality, morbidity, and it was also correlated with uh, socioeconomic level in an inverse proportion. So the severity was something that we found very interesting, something that, that um, you know, we of course published uh, on incidental COVID and we've published on the resident experience. Um, was, this is actually more the residents, but you know, we kind of helped uh, with, with their formulation of the uh, manuscript. Uh, the resident experience in, in COVID-19. Uh, another interesting um, piece of data that's also pending publication is we found um, that our CT viral screening to be in some instances superior to PCR. Whereas in PCR, we know that the sensitivity is around 86%. We found our sensitivity uh, um, in, lung in lung screening for COVID-19 upwards of 90%. So in certain cases, the PCR was not picking up the COVID, but the CT was. And that's a real breakthrough because, again, looking back at the beginning, the ACR guidelines says don't use CT as a, as a screener. It's not the function. And now we're recognizing that it's actually, in some cases, superior to PCR. So that's a bit of uh, a paradigm shift. And um, in terms of 
research that is pending publication. Uh, we've submitted it to the Journal of Radiology, and hopefully that, uh, that will get published. Um, in terms of um, research in, uh, in another direction, uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself. How much time do I have to answer this question? I could really talk about this until the end of the podcast. Um, and please, you know, if you're listening and you want to hear more about this research, just fire me an email, uh, moreski at temple.edu, and I'll be, be, I'll be happy to talk to you uh, about this research over a cup of coffee ad nauseum. But what I really like is the automation um, of interpretation, the artificial intelligence uh, piece of it. And there is a fund of research that is supporting the automation of reading of CAT scans, um, not just CAT scans, but also of plain films, radiographs of the chest, which could rule out COVID infiltrates just as well or better than a resident. Sorry, residents. But that was, <laughs> that was the, the research that was coming out of Boston, is that the, it, can, um, it can rule out COVID infiltrates um, just as good or if not better than a resident. Um, so automation uh, of image interpretation, AI, um, that's an interesting um, direction where radiology may be headed. Um, and I think that it was really put to the test during this COVID pandemic and found to be no different is that the, uh, the computer can actually pick up on a lot of these infiltrates pretty well. So I'm almost getting to the end here, uh, Hilal, with my uh, next to last question from me. And that is, uh, you know, now we have to look kind of towards the future of this pandemic, if you will, and see if we can, because now actually we're in the second wave, uh, you know, if you will, and uh, we want to know how we as imagers, from your standpoint, uh, chest imagers, we can do to help uh, turn the curve again and try to help and put, an, you know, hopefully an end to this pandemic. So I think that before we can talk about the second wave, um, we need to first finish talking about the first wave. And a bulk of my work uh, as a chest imager now at Temple is the re-evaluation of the lungs uh, by CAT scan of patients who have had COVID. Um, and we're, we're learning about new etiology um, that, that's post-COVID fibrosis. And it's, um, it's just being coined by pulmonologists now. Um, as I was told by, uh, by a friend and, 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 and colleague in pulmonology yesterday, he says, he says, Moreski, keep your COVID hat on because this isn't going anywhere. So he's alluding to the second wave, but still we were discussing a patient who had COVID um, about three months ago and now has scarring at the lung bases as evident on chest CT. And we can see that there is the beginning of fibrosis. So I think that we still haven't seen the end of the first wave. And, you know, although the patients, you know, we look, you can look into the news and you can look in COVIDly uh, online, see how many people are infected and how many people have healed, the percentage of mortality. You know, we tend to see these things as binary, healed versus dead. But there is a bit of gray in between. These are patients who have had COVID. Um, and now suffer from scarring and fibrosis, if you will, um, at the lung bases and in the areas that, that were most badly hit uh, by COVID. So it's unclear as to what the long-term effects of pulmonary COVID uh, would be in months, years, and decades. 
Um, but I can tell you for pre from preliminary uh, investigation uh, based upon imaging, it does look like in about one in every 10 to one in every 20 patients who suffer from COVID do develop these uh, scars and fibrotic features at the lung bases. What can we do um, in the future? Is A, prevent getting COVID. <laughs> and again, that's not a radiology question, but prevent getting COVID for in any way possible. Because once the bug gets in, once the virus starts replicating, um, you know, it's, it's a very rapid deterioration. Um, I think that we are in one step with the emergency docs and with the pulmonology team is that we're definitely ordering a lot more COVID screeners in terms of chest CT. That's gone up. I mean, since the second wave has started, that's gone up, I want to say, exponentially. When we were doing maybe five, six screeners a night, I'm talking about between midnight and 8 a.m., that's gone up to dozens. Um, and during the day, we get between 30 and 40 um, COVID screening chest CTs that come through the radiology department. So just in terms of numbers, that's gone up. I think that also the clinicians, um, uh, either they feel more comfortable, they feel they can um, maybe you say that they can more easily order these scans. They're ordering them, um, you know, the, 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 the finger is very light on the trigger, and I think as it should be. I think it's a very good thing that they're ordering these scans, ordering these scans early, diagnosing these patients so that, you know, let's not forget, uh, a good proportion of these patients that come in with COVID-19 don't stay in a hospital. We can discharge them once they have their diagnosis and follow them up at home. So I see radiology as playing an integral role in helping get these patients in and getting these patients out. Excellent. The other thing we have to talk about when it comes to this pandemic is as much as we're both in the healthcare arena and we're talking the technical elements, there is a personal element to this pandemic. And uh, it has obviously hit all of us in different ways in our home, in our family. Um, but I don't know if you want to kind of give a generic um, uh, answer or specific answer as you as you feel comfortable about how the COVID pandemic has affected you personally. So <laughs> how do I answer that question? Um, it, it, it has affected me personally and my family personally in a way that I, I don't even, I don't wish to describe on this podcast, but I can tell you um, just as a narrative, um, we had moved to the Philly area um, just under a year before this thing hit. We were just exploring our, our, our surroundings. We had just moved into a new home. My kids had just moved uh, from Toronto to Philadelphia and were exploring their new friends. And all of a sudden, there's a new normal, as they say. Uh, you can punch me every time I say new normal. I really hate that phrase. Um, like I mentioned, I've got four small children. And uh, my wife is at the, um, you know, at, at the beginning of her career as a psychologist. And all of a sudden, she had to stay home with these kids because the kids are not going to school. So these things have a, 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 a domino effect one after the other. It's not just that we're scared for our loved ones uh, overseas and or over the border, if you will, or just simply slightly out of reach. They could be on the other side of the door, but we're not able to go and give them a hug. Uh, it's not just that we're scared for those family members who may be in the high-risk category. It's not just that we're scared for humanity uh, and, 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 you know, for life as we know it. 
Um, it's not just that we're, we're sick of wearing sweatpants and watching reruns of The Office. Um, there, there actually are, s are s several implications that happen. So for me personally, the first thing that happened is my kids' school got canceled. Um, try keeping four kids inside for six months. Right. I mean, I could only the, only the only other analogy that I have is I think would be like Noah's Ark. You've got like rhinoceri and and zebras, you know, jumping over, uh, you know, into the water because they, they can't stand each other. Um, but I, I can tell you again, uh, speaking emotionally, I, I, I don't even want to go there because I think that it would be, it would be too difficult for me. Um, but I can just tell you as a narrative, um, we have had to have um, Schwartz's hardware, here's a plug for Schwartz's hardware, uh, come out and fix, I think, must be 17 windows in our house. Um, you know, my kids are, are um, uh, they're, they're, they're little kids, you know? I, I mean, I don't want to say that in a bad way, but they're, they're wild kids, uh, you know, as, as, as uh, my grandfather of blessed memory used to say Vildechayas, which is in Yiddish means wild animals. And that's what these little kids are. And they've broken 17 windows. And God bless them because you know what? They're bouncing off the walls and they're having fun with each other. But again, we're cooped up. We're locked down. We're hunkered down. And uh, my wife has switched to doing all of her work completely remotely. And that's had a big impact on me. So now I actually want to move on to... Um some of the questions that the residents asked, uh, uh, I should say Dr. Moreski here. No, please, uh, call uh, me uh, Hillel. Hillel. Um, Looking around so, my shoulder for my dad. So I want to, um, and this is going to get away now from the COVID topic a little bit because we talked about some of it, except for the first one, I guess. So one is the, um, I, I know you're speaking more from the anatomic uh, imaging perspective, but we also, uh, the residents also wanted to know that there's the nuclear medicine division here and uh, what have they been doing with respect to COVID uh, imaging, as far as you know? So as, as far as I know, um, the nuclear medicine has been able to perform VQ scans without the ventilation part of it. Uh, as we know, that COVID is a hypercoagulable state. Um, and you know, just looking at the Q part of the perfusion of the lungs, I think uh, gives us a certain insight um, and remembering that it, uh, this is not just as a quote-unquote pneumonia. Something else is happening um, on the secondary pulmonary lobule level. Um, something is happening to lung parenchyma together with the, you know, the immune response um, and together with the dysregulation of, of surfactant and phospholipids. There's something happening in the blood vessel level, and that's this hypercoagulable state uh, that we were talking about uh, th that can occur in, in, in COVID. Um, I'm, I'm not an expert on, uh, on nuclear medicine, but I know that, that leaps and bounds are being made in that aspect. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Um, the next question is also, I guess, related to COVID. It's an interesting question that the residents have brought uh, to our attention, uh, Hillel, and that is um, they're asking about the risk of contacting COVID for whether it's a chest radiologist or any other radiologist. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about the risk um, and and the um, you know and kind of what we have done, I guess, to sort of m mitigate that. Well, I think that's that's a legitimate question because I think we're all scared of of catching this virus, and um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you anecdotally, at the beginning, 
we weren't sure what this virus was. Not that we're sure what it is now, but, you know, we used to wipe down our groceries and wear two different pairs of gloves and, you know, uh, change our clothes. Uh, uh, when I used to get home from the hospital, I used to strip down, um, you know, to, to my boxers in the garage and put the, all the clothes that were in the hospital into a garbage bag and go upstairs quickly in the shower. Uh, and only then would I greet my family. Um, I think what we've learned is that this thing is really an airborne uh, or this is more of a, uh, an airborne infection. This is more of a ventilatory, a respiratory disease. Um, and while, you know, you could technically contract COVID off of a surface, um, you know, I remember reading that even from the, uh, the Princess Cruise that there has been viral fragments left on surfaces there, you know, 28 days after the last COVID patient evacuated the cruise ship. The, the risk of catching COVID off of a, of a hard surface is very, very low. We now know that, that the best defense we can have against uh, catching the virus is by wearing a mask, by wearing, by simple things, by wearing a mask, washing your hands, social distance, and we can beat this thing. That's right. Uh, thank you for sh uh, giving your viewpoint on that. Um, so now these questions do get away from COVID, and uh, I think they're kind of interesting. One is um, they want to the residents want to know the future of chest radiology, uh, and uh, you know there may be a PET component to that, there may be MRI component to that. So I don't know if you want to share some thoughts uh, as as a, as a cardiothoracic imager on the future of uh, chest radiology. So I went into chest radiology because. I, I have a passion for 3D imaging. I always did. When I first saw the first time I ever saw reconstructions, um, three-dimensional reconstructions, and understood that it was actually uh, derived from real source images and real data, um, not just like a stock image, that we can actually build our own three-dimensional images from these slices, um, it blew my mind. I mean, what the CAT scan is, I still think, you know, it's, it's the most wonderful contraption. Um, you know, that, that won the Nobel Prize in 1971. Um, you know, uh, Hounsfield was a genius and, and McCormick was a genius. I mean, the algorithms that we have to slice a body into axial slices by back projection algorithms, and then we can take those slices and put them back together. I mean, that's just mind-blowing. So cardiac imaging really lends itself to three-dimensional imaging because the heart is, as you know, uh, a globular structure. It's, uh, you can't look at the uh, LAD as a, as a straight vessel. It's not. It's curved. It curves around the anterior surface of the heart. So you need to understand the three-dimensional imaging. You need to understand the topography of the vessel if you want to understand how much stenosis there is in the vessel. So I went into uh, cardiothoracic radiology because I really liked 3D imaging. Now, where is it going? Well, 3D imaging is only getting better and better and better. I mean, show any clinician what you've built from those axial slices, and they'll just keep asking you for more. So cardiologists and pulmonologists are not the only ones who are asking for three-dimensional images. As we know, we all also have the CT colono. We have the CT urograms that we're now doing in 3D. And um, 3D imaging lends itself also to the virtual reality, which is a special favorite of mine. Um, I like to take the residents 
at least once a year to the virtual reality lab, and we can actually step inside the heart. We can step inside some of the organs, uh, and these are images that were built from CT scanning and MR scanning. So I, I think that that's the way that the future is going to be going, is the more and more uh, three-dimensional imaging, more and more um, intuitive imaging, and I think our reports are going to become more and more visual, not just these long-winded prose of paragraphs and impression and conclusion, but I think that our reports are going to be going the way of the emergency docs, and we're going to have small diagrams which are generated either automatically or semi-automatically by the software that we use, and we'll just be clicking nodule over here, um, lymph node over here, rib fracture over here, and we can really co construct a visual report, if you will, um, for the clinicians. Because again, a good report means good communication. So the fact that we create these reports that are, are half in Latin and half in uh, you know, high English um, that you know, a third of the population can understand, I'm not sure that who that's good for. I think that it's much better, those small reports that you make, the phone call that you pick up and you say, yep, there's no aortic dissection, but there is COVID or whatever. Sorry, we're getting off of COVID. But, uh, you know, those, those oral reports, those verbal reports that we have with our colleagues, you know, radiologist is only as good as their report. That's the product that we have. Surgeons cut and slice and dice and... Uh, sew things up and stitch things and smooth things and make things bigger and make something smaller and straighten the noses out. We have our report. And I think that we're not doing as well as we could with these reports. Making these paragraphy, flowery word reports is definitely not the way of the future. The way of the future is making more concise, visually aided reports um, that get our message across in a language that the referring physician can easily understand. And not just that, I think that it's also um, well-timed in this you know, Google generation that the patient also wants to be able to understand their reports. So I think that's the way of the future is, is generating small 3D images, uh, reports that are annotated and visually aided. Um, and look, it was just announced uh, last month that patients are now able to access their EPIC files live only a matter of time until they want to be able to call you up and say, uh, Dr. Kamat, what is a virtual Robin space? And you'll have to answer what that is. So um, chest imaging, it's exciting. I think it's really on the frontier of radiology. And um, yeah. And the final question, if resident question, is about the, um, I guess you have an interesting way of, uh, to the residents to explain the, uh, the pulmonary nodules. Uh, I don't <laughs> know if you want to uh, finish it off with a little uh, explanation of pulmonary nodules from the chest radiologist. I couldn't think of a more boring topic. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I think I told you I went into to, to cardiothoracic radiology because of the heart. Definitely not because of nodules. I think nodules are probably the most boring thing in radiology. Counting nodules, series number, image number, four millimeters, five millimeters, really, really boring part of radiology. So when I gave uh, the residents a lecture on the Fleischner uh, criteria and nodules, um, I just opened it up the floor and asked, what's a nodule? And nobody was really able to answer. So let me ask you, my interviewer, what's a nodule? 
a nodule to me uh, is a density on the radiograph that you can measure. So you're just <laughs> taking the word nodule and saying density right. instead, right? What right. does that mean? Right. I, I have no clue. So uh, <laughs> let me tell you, a nodule, the nodule is the greatest invention by chest radiologists because it means everything and nothing at the same time. Because, right. you know, when you started scanning patients, we'd scan, you know, uh, do a, a rev and then move the bed or the couch over a centimeter, another rev, move the couch over a centimeter. We weren't seeing a lot of these nodules due to slice selection artifact, right? right. We weren't seeing those four and five millimeter nodules and the, the, you know, the resolution of CAT scans was not that good right. at the beginning, but now we're starting to see these little rounded opacities or densities as you call them, right. and we don't know what they are. So one radiologist stood up and said one day, I know what that is. Right. It's a nodule. <laughs> That's <laughs> what interesting. Does it, what does that mean? But what does it mean, a nodule? Right. So nodule is essentially a UFO. Right. A UFO, an unidentified flying object. It's something that we don't know what it is. Isn't that the best invention? Right. It's a word for something that we don't know what it is. It, is it a cancer? Maybe. It's a nodule. Is it a, is it a granuloma? I don't know. But the thing is, when a granuloma becomes calcified, we know it's a granuloma, so that it's not a nodule anymore, right. because it's known. So nodule is something that's still unknown, needs to be followed up, because we don't know what the heck it is. So it's a UFO. We call it a nodule. We say, hey, that's a nodule. Very much like you know, if you have a freckle or a mole, what is it? It's a freckle. Right. It doesn't really bother you it's on, when it's on your skin. You can have it followed up every year by a dermatologist, but it's a freckle, right? right? And, but the thing is, in radiology, when it's inside the body, it tends to concern us a lot more. And we follow them up, and we don't know what they are, but we keep following them, and we keep counting them. And if you're listening, residents, please don't um, report more than four nodules per report. It just makes the reports really too long-winded. And uh, that's what i got to say about that. We still don't know what nodules are. Um, when Fleischner just came out, you know, we were measuring nodules down to four millimeters, and I think it just got ridiculous. Now we're looking at six millimeters and beyond. But again, what's the, what's the clinical significance? In most cases, nothing. You know, these nodules, if they're under a centimeter, are between one and two percent chance cancerous, just as any freckle, Bishak, can turn into cancer, as yeah. we know. Yeah. So that's, you know, in a nutshell, what a nodule is. It's yeah. the greatest invention by cardiothoracic radiologists. So that, that explains the uh, fine print underneath that question where it said Hillel has a special way of talking about <laughs> them. I got the special way part now. <laughs> now it's clear. Um, well, uh, I think that about uh, wraps up the uh, podcast. I want to take the times to say again, to kind of uh, clarify, to say thank you to our first invitee. First of any venture is always uh, a challenging one, and we hope to have success with this audio podcast. Thank but you for inviting for me. For you to come and do the initial one, I think both the residents, Dr. Walshin, Dr. Moon, myself, we're very thankful, and we look forward uh, to many of these more to come. Uh, so thank, thanks for uh, taking the time. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Bishak, and really good luck with this venture. I wish you all the best of luck with this. I think it's a great venture. I feel that it's therapeutic. Um, talk is therapeutic. And um, keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to T-Rads, hosted by Dr. Bishak Kamat. 
Special thanks to the Temple University Health System, our guests, and the Temple Radiology Department, including the Chair, Dr. Cohen, and the VP of Clinical Operations, Ronald Zink, for their time and effort in making this podcast happen. Music by Ethan Butson. Please note that this podcast should be used for educational purposes only and should not be used for the assessment or diagnosis of medical pathology.